out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of singer, songwriter, composer, mix and engineer, recording engineer, drummer, bass and guitarist. It is the one and only Karen Bassett, a one-time member of the Pandoras and also has played in lots of other bands including the test pressings and also sweet emotions and lots of other stuff as well so anyway look i'm not going to go on and on with some massive introduction because you're going to hear all that in this fascinating interview or conversation um so look after several minutes of casual chat and slight issues with our technical bits and pieces which we sorted out and i've edited those out we got down to that very exciting subject that was really not so much about the formative years but also just about life in the family home because I was been talking about where I came from which was fascinating which is the countryside in East Anglia England where not much happened from a working class country background anyway and uh, Karen responded with her own life and background this is it anyway take notes I will toast you at the end Karen it's over to you not really no not at all my dad uh, uh, sold life insurance uh, you know, he, he actually was a musician growing up. He, he played the, uh, he was like first chair violin. And so he's, he's had an understanding and, and, you know, knowledge of, of music his whole life. He loves to, to, uh, well, he's not with us anymore. He loved to, uh, dance and sing and sometimes pull out his violin and play, um, not great, not, it wasn't a great musician, but he had a, a passion for it and he, he loved it. Um, and my mom was a, a stewardess, airline stewardess for TWA. Uh, and she was uh, not all that, she didn't have a passion for music so much, um, but um, she definitely encouraged my career, my, my love of music, because we had a, a, a piano in the living room. And apparently ever since I was a baby, I used to sit up there and just play and whatever. And, and later on in life, we got the music uh, book for Yellow Brick Road. And um, uh, I don't know, it wasn't Yellow Brick Road, whichever album, and I'm not really good, I'm not... I'm not a music historian. I know, I know what I know and that's it. So, you know, I'm not a collector. I'm not, you know, an aficionado, but um, my own personal experience was uh, when I learned to play piano, which was the first instrument I learned to play, um, my parents said, you know, oh, you, you like to play, so let's get you lessons. And so I started taking lessons and then I didn't like to play so much anymore because I had to practice. But I did, I, I, I'm glad I had that experience because I learned to read music. Um, and, and my older sister, who had the cool 70s records, um, and she got some piano books and stuff. And she also was playing piano as well. Uh, she had um, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. So that's actually one of the few songs that I actually can just sit down and I remember. It's like, it's like a player piano scroll in my head, in my brain that's programmed in there. And I could play that that whole intro to that song that's about it though <laughs> i'm not a piano player i just think that was a really good first instrument for me to learn piano and all that stuff and you mentioned earlier the carpenters 
so my, uh, I have two, two sisters, two older sisters. So the oldest one is the one who had all the cool 70s stuff. You know, mm-hmm. she had Janis, Janis Joplin, Pearl. I remember that cover with the, with the feather bow and all that stuff. Yes. And she had, a, you know, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road um, and the, the Frampton Come Alive album. Uh, but my middle sister, the, between my oldest and myself, she had, uh, she was very much into the Carpenters. And um, she, she sort of had a more sort of middle of the road sort of uh, preferences. She loved show tunes and Barbara Streisand, the Carpenters, um, ABBA. Uh, and, and I wasn't really, at the time, I wasn't really influenced, I didn't think so, that much by that music. I was more into the whole 70s rock thing instead of the sort of mellow mm. Carpenters-y thing. But it must have been ingrained in my brain because now I play in bands and I'm actually singing Carpenters songs and ABBA songs. We do a whole bunch of 70s songs uh, in uh, some, some bands that I'm in. So that has kind of come full circle. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and, and one of the things about music is that it just, it brings up feelings and memories. It's like a, it's like a tr- time transport. You can be transported back. Yesterday, somebody posted Duran Duran Rio. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen that in ages. I remember coming home from high school and, and watching this show that was hosted by Richard Blade uh, from K-Rock. And, and he would host this show called, I believe it was called MV3. Uh, I don't think we had it. MTV was something that we didn't have in our house. Other people had MTV, but we had MV3, which was a, like a local TV show thing where they featured some local bands, Bangles, uh, uh, The Three O'Clock, and they would have live performances, but they would also have uh, music videos. And so anyway, um, I had all these flashbacks listening and watching the video to Duran Duran's Rio yesterday. Mm. I, I, was, I was remembering things I hadn't thought about in, in a very long time. And, and I think music does that to people. It, it's really, uh, in fact, my dad, my dad, he passed away just in 2019. And uh, one of the things that we did for him in the hospital was my son, who's a big 40s lover. Of, he loves 40s music and things like that. Um, he made a playlist for my dad. And, and my dad was sort of kind of coming in and out of consciousness and, and having difficulty breathing. And one of the things that really sort of calmed him down was playing these songs that he knew. He went from fighting with the, he had some sort of air breathing apparatus that he kept trying to take off and stuff. And when we brought him in, uh, we brought a a set of speakers, an MP3 player. We made this three hour long playlist and played him the music. And, um, And he changed. He just, he totally like forgot he was in the hospital. He started tapping his hand through the music and, and, started singing along with some of the songs that he really he knew really well so um the power of music is is a pretty pretty amazing thing and how it can transport us to uh better places or you know i mean for some people it's a bad memory because it's like oh that was our song and we're no longer together and so every time i hear that song i think about breaking up with my girlfriend or my boyfriend or you know that was our wedding song and we're not married anymore so i never want to hear that song again so music can also be, you know, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. so good in that respect. But I, I mean, it's so. it's a it's a very very powerful thing, 
And, and I've noticed that in this last year of, I don't, you know, I know this is probably wants this to be an evergreen, but we are in a, in a lockdown with a pandemic and with, uh, with not being able to play music live with other humans, it has really um, affected me in a very not so good way. Mm. Uh, I really miss that a lot. Uh, and I didn't realize how important it was to me until I didn't have it anymore. So, um, you know, and, and even if it's just playing 70s cover songs, which is one of the things that we do. And I love doing that because that's, that's the, the music I grew up with. Um, playing, playing that, uh, even if it's just to, in a local restaurant or bar or whatever, it's just playing the music with other people is just good mental, physical uh, exercise and, and therapy. It's just, it's good for the soul. That's yes, very good. Well, for the well I think from, from doing this show, I think everyone I spoke to, it's getting to that point where they're thinking, I'm really starting. They don't want to say I'm really struggling quite yet, but it's a bit like it is there. It's, it is becoming quite tricky. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> I had at the beginning of the, the pandemic, um, I fortunately had a gig that I could work from home. Uh, mixing an album that I that had I don't know if you can see behind me but this yes. is my my studio in fact that those two things right there are my Pandora's drum heads from the 80s I have them on my wall in my studio I can and see. I know this is this is audio only but yeah they're <laughs> you can see yeah back there and um uh so yeah so I I had the the fortune the good fortune to uh have a job uh, that involved music and creativity. And I, uh, I mixed an album for a band that recorded here. They, we did 13 songs. And then pandemic happened. And originally what we wanted to do was get together in person and mix the album, but that, that wasn't possible. So, um, so I just worked by myself and sent her over, you know, MP3s, whatever, just by Dropbox or whatever, uh, and get feedback. And that's how we did the album. Uh, and because I'm, I was new to mixing, um, I took that opportunity to just sort of take my time and really uh, learn. I sort of went to school for mixing during this lockdown period. Right. And so the, I, I, I've always mixed my own stuff, but I never really uh, got down to the nuts and bolts of, of, of the technology and, and the theory behind how music is mixed. Uh, and so I sort of, I joined a, an online academy and I started going to school for mixing. And, uh, and I think I, I did pretty good. I think I've, I've, I've taken my, uh, my game to a, a whole nother level. It's good to yeah. learn something in this, this weird time. Yeah. When that, when that went away, uh, the pandemic hit me really hard because all of a sudden I, 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 I had come out of my my uh, uh, working and learning, you know, every day and having deadlines and stuff and, and having people say, oh, how's it going? How's this doing? You know, and, and, and I'm telling I'm learning as I'm doing it and I want it to be really good. So I, I, you know, I'm taking a little longer than I would otherwise, but I think you're going to be happy with the product in the end. And they were very, very happy. Um, so that, that's all, all good and well. But yeah, when all of a sudden you come out of that, 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 at space without your blinders on without your 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 laser focus of of working on something like that 
uh, all of a sudden you come out of it and you realize, wow, this, this is a, not a fun situation we're dealing with here. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of stress and, and the inability, the unknowing, the, the, the not knowing when things are going to be over and not knowing uh, you know, if my, my mom's going to get sick and, and she's by herself now. And, and uh, you know, I was reluctant to go and, and visit her because I didn't want to get her sick. And, and, but she's by herself. And, you know, there's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's really tough. And I know that this is something that probably most everybody in the whole world is, is having to deal with. So, yes. um, yeah. And, and, I, and it also made me appreciate how good it was to be busy for those few months when I was mixing the album uh, to have that sort of distraction and, and creativity also. Um, sort of wish I had another mixing gig right now, but I don't. <laughs> I yes, don't. I'm, I think it's, uh, yeah, well, we, we went from, oh God, last year was a blur, but the winter has been really tough here. You know, it's been a real, it kind of gets dark, that's fine, but it's been quite wet, which is boring. And it's just kind of felt, you know, like, God. And then, okay, that's, that's that year, you know, pandemic, you know, blah, blah. New year, everything, everyone's got all these events lined up and it's like, they've all just got canceled, just dun, 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 dun. And you just think, oh, no, I can't believe it. You know, so it's, um, it's a little bit like, so talking to a lot of people, they think, well, we're just going to scrap this year. We're just going to start thinking of 2022. And it's like, yeah, it's probably better. But, you know, it's hard to kind of accept it, isn't it, really? Let's face it. Well, I think it's, it's hard for some people, harder for some than others. I, I did end up uh, leaving a few bands because uh, they were a little too, uh, I don't want to say hopeful because hopeful is a good thing but they were unrealistic about when we would be able to start doing things again. And they were sort of pushing, oh, let's get together and rehearse and let's do a, an online show. And I'm like, I don't know that I want to get together in a room with people who are from all different families, uh, yes. you know? Yeah. And they're like, oh, we can, we can, you know, distance and we can, uh, and they're really good at wiping down the microphones. And I'm like, well, th that's not really the issue. The issue is us all getting together in the same space when we're not, in the same family <laughs> um and and several of the i was in a girl girl band and and so, and a couple of the girls were you know in, immunocompromised with you know uh underlying health health issues that could potentially cause them greater you know yeah. ha harm if they were to catch the virus so uh i just didn't like the pressure of of that they were putting on everybody to, they wanted to like play a gig in Georgia. And I'm like, well, Georgia's opening up and I, I don't agree with that. And I don't want to go there and I don't want to be participate in an event where people could possibly get sick and die from seeing a rock concert. It's not worth it to me. I don't care what, how much money. And I, I don't know that we would have made much money. We would have made something, but uh, it wasn't worth it to me. Uh, rock and roll is it, it's like life, you know, that, that greater than sign, uh, yes. life, life is greater than a gig or rock and roll. I'm sorry. I just, you know, I can <laughs> wait. I've, I've played in bands. I have toured, I've recorded, I've done all these fun things. Uh, I, I'm no longer trying to be a, a rock star or make a, a living at it. Um, I just think that, that it's, you just have to do things for the right reasons. And, and, and there, for me, I wasn't sort of uh, uh, on the same page as they were in terms of that. And so 
uh, that and another another band I was in, they wanted to get together and record. And I was like, how are we going to do that with the pandemic? And I just had to just, I didn't appreciate the pressure I was being put under. And I didn't think it was appropriate for the circumstances of the pandemic. And, and I, I just, I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do it. Sorry, guys. Yes, <laughs> I wish all the luck in the world. I'm just, I'm not on the same page. And I, and honestly, I feel like a big burden has been lifted that I don't have that pressure uh, anymore. So uh, I can focus on, uh, you know, I, I was in too many bands before, <laughs> before, before the lockdown, I was doing too many things with too many people. And, and, and my, uh, my body at this age uh, needs to, needs to only do one or two things. And so I sort of pared down the amount of, I was spreading myself too thin. I was having problems with my hand and having to wear a brace and stuff like that. And so I just, it the pandemic ha happened and I, I look at it as, as an opportunity to really, um, and I think a lot of people have reflected back on what they were doing and, and what's really important. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, you know, that, that it really like came full, uh, in my face and, and realized that I was just doing too many things and, and I was serving others and, and not so much serving myself and, and my genuine interests and abilities and talents and, and wants and needs. So I, I decided I would be a little more selfish and think about my, my own well being, you know, physically, psychologically, and my career, whatever that means. Uh, and do what I thought was was best for me. And, you know, I, I think I gave everybody fair warning. I was like, hey, you know, I wish you all the best. I got to let you know I, I, I can't move forward with this project. Uh, I know we don't have any gigs booked or anything like that. So, you know, I, I didn't feel like I left anybody hanging. You know, I didn't, didn't uh, uh, ditch anybody uh, before a gig or, you know, anything like that. So tried to be responsible about it and finished up a few recordings with, with those people. And then said, okay, I can't, I just can't do this anymore. Sorry. Wow, wise choice. So look, as the, as the 70s were, were trucking on with, with, with just kind of excitement. So how did your musical kind of career start to develop during that decade? Because you mentioned, you know, the Carpenters and Abba, which obviously in the music, Barbara Streisand musicals, obviously yeah. the punk world coming on. To be honest, I was too, I was too young yeah. for punk. It was kind of... It was kind of the early 80s that things started to change musically for me. So what was your, because not only were you listening to music, you were playing it as well, which you know, I didn't. Well, so for me, I was always in, uh, in junior high. I, don't, I think they call it middle school now. In oh. junior high, um, I joined uh, the school band, the concert band, uh, and I... I really ultimately wanted to play the drums, but um, they didn't uh, have enough seats in the drum line, the drum section. And so I had to pick out of a hat and I didn't get picked to play drums. And so I ended up playing a bunch of different instruments until I finally did get a seat opened up in the, in the drum section and I did get to play the drums. But um, I, we, we played a lot of different types of music uh, in that, um, in the school concert band and in the school concert band I met I met uh, the piano player Mora and we became 
fast friends and we started our own little band on the side and we would rehearse in my living room. So I had my drums set up. We had my, my, my piano that I grew up playing in the, in the living room and we would play um, songs. We would play <laughs> Billy Joel and we would play the cars and um, whatever was sort of on, on the mainstream radio. Uh, mm. I, I ran by um, Flock of Seagulls was one of the songs I remember um, we played. Uh, we loved the Go-Go's. We were like, wow, okay, we, I want to be, you know, I want to be in a band that's like the Go-Go's. And so... And what, um, and what about that New York kind of punk scene as well? Like, um, I don't know, Blondie and um, the Ramones. Oh, and Heads. Were well, they kind of, kind of on your radars, on radar? Well, for me, uh, Blondie, the, uh, I think it's Eat to the Beat album. Yes. The... The Beat. I used to put that... Uh, I had my my uh, drum set in my bedroom and my little record player behind me, and I would put my headphones on and I would play to eat to the beat. I would play it all the way through. I would try to keep up with Clem. Clem is one of my favorite drummers, Clem Burke of all time. I, he's just so incredibly powerful and fast. And um, I've seen him in person uh, a couple times now, and the first time I saw him play in person. Uh, which was only a few years ago, and I was playing drums in a band at the time. It, I came back to the next rehearsal, and uh, uh, Robbie, the singer guitar player, he asked me, he's like, Karen, what, you're, you're drumming, it, it's like different, it's like better, what happened? And I said, I saw Clem play the other night, and, and something happened where just watching him instantly made me a better drummer. Just seeing him in person, seeing him do his thing. And, and, and having been a fan of, of, of his music and, and of Blondie, and especially that record, mm. um, that had a, a big impact on me. Uh, another record that I put a lot of times on uh, was a, this sort of like, hit, it was like a, we had these, these companies that would put out these compilation hits. And this one was uh, the Beach Boys. And I, so I had this compilation of all the Beach Boys hits on this, this record that has these cartoon surfers on the cover. It's like a K-Tel. I don't know if you know K-Tel. Yes, yes. I, I, think, I, think it, I think it was one of those K-Tel compilations uh, or a similar type, type thing. Anyway, I would put that on and I would listen to that and I would just play. So surf music, Blondie. Um, I did have a Billy Joel album that I also put on. Uh, it was the one, I think it's the, he's like, there's a glass house behind him. I think right, it's called yes. Glass Houses. Um, yeah. So, I didn't really get, I wasn't really uh, tapped into the whole punk thing. Um, I did start listening to Rodney on the Rock here in, in Los Angeles uh, in the 80s. And, and that's actually how I first heard of the Pandoras, which I would eventually become a member of and, and be the drummer for. But um, yeah, we heard that, you know, Drama Rama and Blondie, uh, the police. Uh, Duran Duran is not punk, but I am. I they're like they're kind of like the Beatles to me. They were like the Fab Five, and I I was. I know it's not cool <laughs> <laughs> to be to be you know to have the 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 pedigree that I have as far as playing in a sixty second like all girl you know garage band. But I love Duran Duran, and I you know I like Madonna, and and um, there's a lot of sort of mainstream stuff. I like anything with a good beat a good melody that's, that's, that's produced well. A lot of punk stuff isn't really uh, uh, easy on the ears in terms of production. 
uh, but it's raw and, and, and uh, I like the Dead Kennedys. I used to listen to the Dead Kennedys. My friend, um, I used to surf a lot when I was growing up. And uh, one of my friends, she was a year older than me and she could drive. And so she would put the Dead Kennedys on when we'd, we'd head to the beach together. Right. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 that's where I heard the, that type of music was, was, you know, driving to the beach with her. And see, the music, music reminds me of certain periods of time or even a specific day in my life. I remember driving with her one day to the beach and we were listening to a uh, uh, holiday in Cambodia. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, music has that, that, that way of, of waking things up in our brain, you know, 40, 50 years later. So with, yes, I know, it's, it's kind of interesting how that transports. Cause yeah. Because yes, I keep thinking of the Carpenters at the moment. Uh, <laughs> my, my childhood. But I always thought, if you like the Carpenters, you're definitely going to like Joy Division and the Smiths, because lyrically, they're really similar. That's my theory. Well, it's not so much a theory. I mean, lyrically, you just read those words and, um, you know, from those bands, and you think, oh, my God, they've got a lot in common. But then, yeah, so with us, I mean, we had the punk period, and so did, you know, you guys. And then there was that post-punk period, you know, because every scene sort of gets a bit sort of rubbish after two years, let's face it. You know, the, yeah. the, kind, of, the, the kind of good bands have done their thing, and they're sort of, and then all the other bands jump, jump on the bandwagon and it's like, oh dear, that's kind of... So then, you know, the punk scene sort of quickly like, okay, that's enough of that. You know, the post-punk world of, you know, Gang of Four and Magazine and, you know, the Nightingales and Marky Smith and The Fall, you know, they, these are all quite scratchy bands. But then Indie Rock comes along. I loved Indie Rock because it was 83, The Smiths. That was a major moment, really. Because before that, you had a few bands like Julian Cope and... Um, you mentioned the police. It was also Simple Minds and uh, yeah. yeah, those kind of and you too as well. But then the Smiths came, and I kind of felt like there was a real like, oh right, okay, there's a new band in town, and they had that five year kind of moment. So what was what was it like for you, kind of um, at that point as the '80s started to to leave behind that more punk world? I mean, there was also the hardcore world, but I just wonder what was kind of happening. Well, I, like I said, I wasn't that tapped into the whole hardcore thing. Um, I tended to listen to mainstream radio, just like I did growing up in the 70s with, with the um, KHJ in Los Angeles here. Uh, I just love a great pop song. Um, I, I'm not a, a really into any uh, screaming vocals, and I, I should be more... I'm concerned with lyrics and I'm not really a lyric person. Uh, sometimes I'll be singing a song and I, I don't even think about the lyrics. The lyrics are, are melody to me. They're an instrument. The voice is an instrument. Um, and I know that's, that's not a very popular, let's say, point of view. Uh, I have friends who are all about the lyrics. The lyrics are everything, you know. <laughs> um, but to me, it could be in any language. As, as long as I, there's a melody and there's a good beat. Uh, and good, you know, structure to the song, uh, and it makes me tap my foot. That's that, that's really what I care about. Um, I, I'm probably a weak lyricist as a result because I just write words that sound good with the music and uh, sort of uh, hint at what the topic of the song's about. But I, I, I don't try to make a statement with 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 lyrics. I just want to have a music that's singable and and 
memorable and and most of the stuff that I, that I grew up with uh, didn't really have deep lyrics. Um, I don't think a lot of the pop pop bands, you know, Duran Duran or or the Go Go's. Did you I mean, did you love did you love Say the Prayer? I did. I did. That's a nice lyric. I did. And and I, I like those songs even more now because I have tried to learn to play bass to those songs. And um, John Taylor is, uh, people say this about a lot of musicians. He's an underrated bass player or he's an underrated drummer. But these are very, very famous successful people and they they are appreciated by especially their fellow musicians um as far as their abilities go and and he's he's uh, um trying to play his stuff uh rio is just i mean you listen to that bass line and that drives that song it's incredible i mean he's yeah. you know and not only was he a great bass player but he's easy on the eyes really <laughs> that you know good looking guy he's still a good looking guy uh and an incredible musician incredible musician really great player yes um, and so how did you i mean when did you start to um well how did you get into your first band or the band um my first let's say gigging band um i was still in high school um i was in the marching band playing snare drum and uh got a lot of chops from all that stuff but um, I was sort of getting turned off to the rigidity of, of marching band. It's, it's very militant. It's very, you know, fall in line and play, play like you're one. We had five snare drums. It's like you, when you do a rolls, there's this, this, this um, goal you have is to sound like one drum. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain sound that happens when everybody is locked in. And it's a pretty cool thing. But... I just wanted to play in a band. I wanted want to get out of that. So I started looking in a local uh, uh, newspaper where bands get connected. Um, and I saw that there was somebody looking for a lead guitar player. And I had just got my first electric guitar and took a couple lessons. And I figured, you know what? What have I got to lose? I'll just join a band and it'll force me to get better. And I really wasn't a very good guitar player then. I was brand new you know um but uh yeah i played in that band for i don't know a year or two i think it was an all-female uh rockabilly band we did some recordings and stuff uh never did anything other than play you know some local clubs and do a couple of recordings um but the thing is is that when i was fired from that band and i was fired from that band in the parking lot of a famous club here in los angeles called madame wong's in chinatown Right. Um, a lot of bands played there, you know, the Plimsolls and uh, uh, who else just, uh, this, I think believe the police had played there as well when they were starting out. Anyway, uh, I was in the parking lot of, of uh, Madame Wong's Chinatown and the bass player, you know, the, the band's is like, you know, oh, well, we've got this other, you know, girl who's, uh, she's, she's got a lot of experience and a lot of chops and she really fits us better. And, and you know, and I go, oh, I get it. I get it. You know, this was fun, whatever. And the bass player, who uh, her brother was in uh, the Dickies, um, he was Chuck Wagon in the Dickies, and um, and she she was like, uh, oh yeah, my um, uh, I, I, I'm friends with uh, this this guy who's dating Paula from the Pandoras, 
And uh, they're actually looking for uh, new band members. And I'm like, okay. And so she gave me Paula's number and I called Paula. God, did I call her that night? I probably called her that night and, uh, and said, hey, I'm Karen and I'm a guitar player and I'm looking, you know, looking for a new band. And she's like, oh, well, I'm the guitar player. And I said, well, I, I play drums too, but I, I injured my shoulder surfing and I'm, I'm sort of recovering from that. She's like, well, get the record, listen to it and, and see what you think. And I had heard them on, on K-Rock, on Rodney's show. And, and I'm, I was already a fan of them. And so I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And uh, I was a little sore, you know, playing drums and, and some of their stuff was really fast, sort of surf, surf music-y stuff. And, uh, but um, I auditioned and Paula really liked uh, my, my drumming and I really loved the music. So mm. that was it. One audition. And she's like, yeah, this, you know, this is great. And so that's you, sort of how I got into the Pandoras. Which was, which was kind of a glorious period, wasn't it? Because, um, you know, like I, I know you, you know, um, you know, I mentioned the sort of the, this sort of, I suppose the indie world, there was like bands like the Smiths that came along. And for that period from sort of 83 to 87, in the UK anyway, there was definitely a vibe. There was people like them, the, you know, the go-betweens, the Triffids, you know, all these kind of very sort of jingly jangly. So, you know, there was, there was a kind of a moment, wasn't there? Kind of a move, for me, a bit of a movement. So, um, so with, with sort of joining a band that had already been established, what was that kind of like? Um, well, it was nice to go from a, a, a band that just played local clubs with no, you know, it, I, I felt like I stepped into something that, that was sort of where I thought I should be. I, I, I felt like I belonged in that sort of world. Um, as, as somebody who's been playing music her whole life, since I was a baby, basically, uh, I felt like that was just the, the, the next step, uh, the next level, let's say. Uh, I mean, they were, they were a brand new band, pretty much. I mean, they had just put out their, their, their pink album on Vox, and they were just set to start, like, promoting it and touring and all that stuff. And then Paula just, the whole band just sort of fell apart. And Paula fired everybody. I think somebody quit. And somebody was fired. And she's like, I'm just going to start from scratch. And uh, she got the bass player, Julie. And then she got, she got me. And then Melanie was next. And then we had that version of the Pandoras, which is awesome. And so we went out and promoted that album that we weren't on. But we became the touring band. And then we were the new version of the Pandoras with Paula. Paula's a singer-songwriter, so um, there, there were... I'm sorry, what was your original question? I think I'm going <laughs> off on a tangent here. No, I just... I suppose it was kind of that period of music where there was definitely a... I suppose for me, a, a bit of a, a scene, you know, because there's moments where things definitely are on it, like, you know, mentioning Duran Duran. There was that period where Duran Duran were so on it, and then suddenly that group of 16 to 18 year olds is kind of they've kind of grown up and the next generation wants their band and suddenly you know a band suddenly goes oh look wait a minute we're in the studio we're slightly struggling with our second third album and it's a bit like 
it's kind of tricky for bands to keep that together because that generation wants their next band, don't they? And so I was just thinking that you were at, at a good time being, you know, like catching the zeitgeist moment. Well, there was that whole uh, Paisley Underground thing going on in, in Los Angeles with uh, the three o'clock and the Dream Syndicate, the Long Riders, uh, the Bangles, uh, the Pandoras were part of that. Um, and that was sort of our, uh, our thing that was happening uh, in LA. And, and there were clubs that just had these garage 60s bands playing. It was called the Cavern Club. Mm. And, um, and the guy from Bomp Records, Box Records, Bomp Records, Greg Shaw, uh, it was like his club. He hosted it and uh, they had DJs playing records and things like that. The kids all dressed up in their 60s clothes with their mop tops and uh, beetle boots and, and, and the girls with their go-go boots. And they all danced in the style that you'd see on those old 60s movies, you know. <laughs> And yes. that was sort of the thing that was going on. It, it, it was it was not a, a huge movement, but it was popular enough where the bands that came out of that uh, got signed to major labels uh, like the Three O'clock and the Bengals. Uh, I don't the Bengals weren't playing the Cavern Club, but they were part of that whole um, uh, Paisley Underground movement and group of bands. Uh, and that was sort of fun to be a, a part of that. Um, we didn't we didn't really fit in with uh, typical indie bands of of the day. Um, I guess I guess we were indie. I don't know. I don't Could know. You, yes, I think well vaguely. You weren't you weren't kind of you had the sort of LA hair metal bands, and then in this country we had that very Trevor Horn esque production sound, and then there was the kind of the like you said, there's the Paisley scene and there's the indie scene, which was kind of definitely not part of mainstream the mainstream really was it. It was no. much more about sort of the people who didn't want to sort of particularly say, that's great. We love Phil Collins. You know, we, <laughs> we, you know, there was the kind of, you know, and obviously millions of people loved, you know, Phil Collins in the 80s. Yeah. But there was a lot of people who went, mm, that's not quite what I'm looking for. Because <clears throat> people, you know, he was, I mean, it's nothing wrong about Phil Collins, but, you know, he, you know, a 16 to 18 year old going to the small club wants to see a band they've discovered and they've just kind of put that, that first or second album and you've seen them quite close up. You don't want to just go to a stadium with 60,000 people seeing, you know, doodly old men sort of playing, you know, vague prog rock with a few kind of snappy singles and then think, God, that was, that was a bit sort of a, you know, you're not getting hot and sweaty in stadium rockland with genesis really are you let's <laughs> right not it's not going to happen really whereas you can be up close thinking you you've discovered something because when you're young not everyone but some people want to feel like they discover that band and you're a bit disappointed when you hear someone else say oh i like that band as well you think that's my band that's not <laughs> just go away so yeah, anyway look so as as the 80s progressed you did well, so you were on the next album which was stop pretending that's that's the one that you're yeah. So what well, we we did a we did a, a a single almost right away once we had the band members once uh, Julie was in, I was in on drums, Melanie was in on keyboards. We went into the studio almost immediately and we recorded the uh, uh, Hot Generation and You Don't Satisfy mm. uh, sing, single, and and that that got a lot of airplay instantly. And and I mean 
we had never really been in a studio. Uh, Julie hadn't, I hadn't, Melanie hadn't. Uh, so that was sort of like, and we were like 18 years old, you know, we were like kids. Uh, and going into this big studio and recording with, you know, there's a sound booth and there's there's just giant room where you go and you record your drums and everything. And, um, you know, that was the first sort of real professional uh, experience. And that sort of led to us promoting the new version of the band, but we were out uh, playing playing clubs and we did a tour. We did an East Coast tour before we, uh, uh, and we had that lineup for about a year. Uh, and then, um, boy, we ended up playing, yeah. We hooked up with Nina Hagen. Nina Hagen was a big fan of our band. I, I don't, I'm not even sure how that happened, but we ended up playing some shows with Nina Hagen. And cool. we opened we opened for her at this place called the Greek Theater in Los Angeles, which is a huge place. It's a it's a Hollywood Bowl size place. I don't know if you know the Hollywood Bowl, but the yes. Greek Theater, it's a big venue. It's the real deal. So we opened for her and, and we're this little local, you know, L.A. band and we're opening on this giant stage. It was that was pretty cool to 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 be, you know, not even what, 20 years old, 19 years old and playing at the Greek Theater. And Nina Hagen invited us to, to play with her in New York at the Beacon Theater. And we were like, we'd love to, but we, we don't have, I mean, we have to pay for hotel and, and flying and all that stuff. And we didn't know how we were gonna make that happen, but we knew that it would be a really good thing for our career. So I, I actually asked my parents, I said, could you loan us the money for the plane tickets? And, and they did. And from what I understand from the people at Rhino Records who did the Stop Pretending record, um, that gig, us flying out there and playing that gig and getting the uh, accolades or whatever feedback that we got from that gig, that was the one thing that really got Rhino Records' attention. And um, they signed us and we made the Stop Pretending record. And right at that same time, when, when we made that transition from uh, 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 right before we recorded the Stop Pretending record, uh, Julie left the band, the bass player, and Kim Shattuck joined the band. And so Kim is on that record. And so we, we had to figure out, you know, who's going to do what, because Kim, all of a sudden, she's got great vocal chops. She's like a great singer. I was doing a lot of the vocal uh, stuff previously mm. on, the, on the other recordings. And, and so we had to work out who's going to do what, because we had been playing all these new songs that were on Stop Pretending. And so I was doing a lot of the background vocals. And, and, then, um, and then when Kim joined, it's like, well, she sings really great. Let's just get whoever sounds the best. Let's have them do it. So we just, you know, we had to sort of rework the, the dynamics of the band, who's doing what and all that stuff, work Kim into the band. And, and she was great, you know. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we recorded that Rhino record. Uh, and then we went out and we toured. We toured uh, the U.S. and Canada. Um, we had all kinds of crazy, wild road stories, as, <laughs> as bands do. Uh, you know, a bunch of single girls in a rock and roll band, a, a 60s uh, garage punk band uh, on the road, you know, in a van, staying at cheap, cheap hotels, you know, and, and, and with free, free drinks and, and uh it was it was pretty wild 
So you, wild, you, you toured with people like um, the Fuzz Tones, who I've done an interview with the guy from the Fuzz Tones. That's quite, he's quite rock and roll, isn't he? We did play some shows with the Fuzz Tones. We, we played at Irving Plaza in New York. And this was when, we still, when, when Julie was still in the band. So this was sort of at the very, very beginning of that new lineup um, after the, the Pink Album lineup. And uh, yeah, we played with the Fuzz Tones. I, the, in fact, the, the, the photo of us on stage at Irving Plaza um, that's on the back of our You Don't Satisfy Hot Generation single on the back of that is uh, you see the Fuzz Tones drum head. I'm, I'm sitting at the kit, but it's the Fuzz Tones drum head. Um, and they, um, they hosted us. We stayed with them. We stayed in their apartments and stuff. And, and we had a really good time. We, they showed us New York. Um, you know, they, we smoked weed. <laughs> I, I hadn't, I, I, I was sort of this, this Valley girl, this, you know, good, goody two shoes Valley girl. And so, um, you know, being in New York in, 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 in a sort of, you know, dodgy, a little bit of a dodgy neighborhood, you know, you have to be careful, you know, what time of day you walk this way and don't turn that corner. And, uh, it was it was being thrown into that environment and and it, it, it was exciting i must say it was exciting it was fun um it, it was good it was good and they they were all really sweet really nice and, and uh um and helpful and supportive and we rehearsed uh at their rehearsal studio and and uh in new york and it was up some some like a service elevator type thing, you know, in industrial place that was all concrete and all this stuff somewhere in New York. And, uh, you know, and we, we would, we rehearsed before our show together and stuff over there. But, you know, the, the fun stuff is not necessarily the shows. It's all the stuff you do in between. It's the traveling, it's, it's the sightseeing, it's the, the, the crazy antics that happen after the show. Uh, sometimes Kim would disappear Kim would disappear and we'd all go looking for Kim. Where's Kim? Kim disappeared again, you know, and I don't know if it was an attention thing or if she was having just playing or whatever, but you know, after show we'd have a few drinks and, and Kim would get barefoot and disappear. She'd be out in the alley behind the club or something like that. And we'd have to go find her and she'd be giggling or something. I don't know. It was just crazy stuff that happens on the road. Well, absolutely. Uh, and you, you yeah. know, you, you, you also thought of people like Johnny Thunders and Iggy Pop who were probably quite, the, the ultimate in rock and roll, really, aren't they? Uh, okay, so I wasn't in the band when they played with Johnny Thunders, but we did uh, open for Iggy Pop at the Palace in, in L.A. Um, didn't tour with him, but we did, we did play that show with them, which was really fun. We also played with the Cramps, uh, which was really cool. Uh, we did a show in, I believe, San Diego with the Cramps opening for them. Yes. And that, that was super fun. I mean, their audience... Their audience really dug what we did, which is fun. Uh, we've also played with, uh, let's see, we did um, Fishbone and Madness. Right. We did that at the Palladium. Um, one of the bands we toured with was a band called, um, oh, wait, who did we tour with? Let's see, let's see, let's see. No, I'm getting my bands mixed up, sorry. Um, the, the Pandora's pretty much toured as a headliner. After we did the Rhino record and we went out to support that, we were pretty much headlining, except if we were opening for a, a one-off, uh, a yeah. big thing, you know. But we were pretty much the headliner. Um, we were getting played on college radio, and so we had that sort of audience happening. Um, you know, the indie college 
the not the people who go to the Phil Collins shows, yes, I guess. This is true. Um, that audience and and that was super fun. Everybody was was like you know kind of our age, and um, you know we'd have people show up in 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 these cities. You know you'd have people that just kind of dressed like normal college kids of the day, but then you'd also have the the '60s people. They'd show up dressed in their '60s clothes with their '60s haircuts, doing their '60s dances, and they always seemed to show up. Uh, there were always some at every show. Um, in some areas more than others, like you know, San Francisco or uh, Portland, um, they had a, a scene there too, which was this the whole 60s, 60s thing was happening on a, on a small level, but it was happening. And so we had those people come out and see us, but we had the college kids come see us. We had some older people come see us who really dug that whole 60s vibe. Um, so yeah, that was, that was super fun. Yes, because interesting enough, because doing this show for a while, I realised it's a kind of a five-year narrative with a lot of bands. And obviously, you've got a slightly different one, but in the UK, you know, like a band will get together quite young, um, you know, spend 12 months messing around, drinking lots, playing something. And we had a DJ in this country called John Peel. So John Peel would often get the sort of, if it was quirky and a bit odd, he would love it. So he would give it a spin and then they'd get a John Peel session, which was recorded at the BBC. And also we had these kind of three music papers like the NME, Science Melody Maker. And, and so, you know, people would get that attention, could get that attention quite quickly. So things would often progress and everything, everyone's in the honeymoon phase. So the first, you know, single, first album things are good and then there's the sort of tricky second album you know where you know the band is getting a bit more fractured and and stuff like that but the two the thing that all, a lot of really finishes a lot of UK bands off is when they you know get to that second third album and that period of about five years where they've realized that they've just slightly had enough they haven't made any money they're sick of each other and the other thing is that if they ever play America they often go we went to America, done tour, and came back and split up. So America does seem to finish British bands off quite quickly. Oh, you wow! How many people say that story? But I, it just I, you know, I didn't I didn't know that was a thing. But that's interesting. Yeah, it really they just can't quite handle the sort of the size, the traveling, the the kind of I I think they just feel completely beaten by the end of it. You know, whereas in the UK you realize it's tiny, isn't it? It's tiny, you put it in your pocket. You know, you can drive around the whole country and it's kind of, you can go from one end to the other and across. And, and every like town and city would have an indie club, you know? So again, you know, there would be that alternative night probably on a Monday to a Thursday, you know, there would be something happening in sort of Bristol, Glasgow, Manchester, Leeds, Norwich, you know, and obviously London as well. So, you know, bands could get that momentum going. It's then, how do you deal with it? So what was your kind of experience as, as you, as we trucked on in the, in the 80s? Because you obviously got the album, you're doing well, and then, and then it finishes for you, doesn't it? For me personally, with the Pandoras, it, it ended sort of when the band got signed to a major label. Um, our, our going out and touring uh, to promote the Rhino record, uh, we seemed to gain a, a lot of momentum and the, the, the clubs were, were, there were more people showing up at the shows. Uh, we, we just had this momentum going. And uh, apparently there was a guy from Electra Records who was flying out to see our shows. We didn't know it. Uh, he had seen a few shows, and then he he introduced himself at one of at one of the one of the shows, 
and uh, said, yeah, I've, I've been to a couple shows already. And, and we're like, oh, you're from LA, you fly out this? He says, yeah, I've been checking you guys out. I've been keeping my eye on you and we're interested in signing you. Um, and immediately Paula, Paula started having a relationship with him. <laughs> so um, it, it was weird because we ended up having to, uh, they asked us, he asked us, you need to fire your manager in order for us to move forward with signing you to Electra Records. We didn't want to do it, but we also wanted to have a major record label deal we didn't see any way out of it because they gave us an ultimatum you know you need to fire this guy if you want to move forward with us mm -hmm. so we had to have a meeting with the manager and say you know i'm sorry i hope you understand we really appreciate what you've done uh it was it was not easy you know and we're just kids and we're just trying to do the right thing um but uh in hindsight you know it, it, i don't know i guess we did what we had to do at the time to move forward um, so yeah, we signed with the major record label and we started the process of finding a producer for the record, uh, and picking the songs and all that. And we went in and we recorded it, we recorded it and, um, we did all this. It, it was a different experience than before because we did a lot of pre-production with the, with the producer where he would just work one-on-one -on -one with me. Uh, as the drummer, because, you know, drums and bass sort of lay down the foundation for the rest of the song. And so I, I ended up writing out my, my drum parts uh, because he would want me to, and I worked with him on this. This wasn't like him telling me what to play. This is like, well, you know, if we want to have this song uh, have changes and, and movement and this and that, you know, he was just saying play an and one into this next verse instead of just one, two, one, two three, four play and one to sort of lead into the next verse and do that each time. And so I just made notes and I, I drew out all my, uh, and there were good suggestions. I learned a lot. You know, this is a guy who worked with uh, uh, Rick Springfield and, and did a lot of big records at the time. And so uh, Bill Drescher and I went to, we went to Sound City. That's where we did our, our pre-production for this. And we worked, you know, we would have like an eight hour day uh, booked and we would just get like in a room and rehearse and go over the songs and record everything and go home and listen and go, okay, okay, I get it. This is, this is what I need to do here and this and that. And so when we actually went into the studio because studio time's expensive and we were, we were booked at, you know, real recording studios. The, these weren't fly by night places. This was crystal sound uh, or, or uh, where did we record? Gosh, where did we record that one? Crystal sound was the Rhino record. Um, I'm trying to think where we recorded the Electra record. Uh, it's not coming to me right now. Anyway, um, oh yeah, Studio Ultimo. It was actually a, a big studio that was built in the basement area of, of, a, of an office building. And they had this huge uh, room and huge control room with this giant window it just totally felt like you know the real deal and all that stuff and that's where we did all the basic tracks and everything for the studio i think we actually recorded everything there um and um it was the most let's say focused i've ever been uh on recording and you know playing to a click, click track and uh and really just locking everything in and getting the best possible sounds. They had a, a drum doctor guy come in to uh, help me get the, the drums tuned and sounding right and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then once we got the drum sound dialed in, we were just recording all the songs. And Paula was there, uh, you know, singing so I could I could have know my place. We were just recording scratch guitars and things like that. But um, so yeah, so we recorded the Electra album. It was completed. It was mixed. We had taken um, uh, we had photo sessions and all this kind of stuff. Um, but also at the same time, um, Paula's boyfriend, who was our A and R guy, was very much involved with the inner workings of the band, the the direction, the the look, the sound. So much so that that I felt like we didn't have the individual people didn't have a voice anymore in the band, and and I sort of fought against him being the the creative sort of director of the band as opposed to us doing what we do and and keeping our integrity and he was really focused on paula making paula the, the focus the star and you know she writes the song she sings the songs i get it she's a lead singer that happens but uh, i felt like the rest of us weren't getting uh we weren't we weren't being heard and so uh, I pushed for us to, to get a band manager. And that was met with a lot of um, resistance, let's say. And basically I was told either get with the program with what we're doing or you know, we're gonna find someone else. And I was like, well, I, I really feel like we need representation, each of us, you know? We need someone that represents the band and it's, it's not just Paula's thing. And, Anyway, I ended up getting fired. So, um, and the, the album didn't come out because uh, there were a number of lawsuits actually that came out. I was the instigator of one because I just wanted to make sure that, that it, when that album comes out that I get credited and I get paid for the sales. Mm -hmm. Cause I you know, spent the, the last three or four years in the band working on the songs, recording the songs. <laughs> And I didn't want to be excluded from all that. So that was just my effort to make sure that I was covered. Uh, and the former producer who produced the Rhino record also had a lawsuit because he was supposed to be paid. If the band got signed to a major label, he was supposed to get paid. And I didn't have anything to do with that, but he had his own thing going on. Anyway, with these multiple things going on, the record label just said, we're gonna shelve this record and we're gonna drop you guys. Uh, that happened after I was fired. Um, so that album just never came out. Unfortunately, it was a good album. It's a little dated in the production style and stuff. There's some things that are a little dated, but um, it, it really is a, a snapshot of, of who we were at the time and what was going on in music at that time. Um, I, I hope it'll come out one day. Yes. But, uh, God, yeah. Be, oh, what a curiosity. So then how do you sort of pick yourself up? Because you're, you know, you've had this kind of amazing sort of moment, you know, from like a rocket taking off with being in the band, but suddenly it all finishing. Then what do you do next? Well, uh, I actually got a, a, a phone call from somebody from a local band and um, Somebody knew somebody who knew I was no longer in the Pandoras and knew that I played guitar as well. Anyway, long story short, they said, let's go get some Tex-Mex together and, and we'll give you a cassette tape and we'll talk. And so I met up with the girls from a band called the Rebel Pebbles. And they were like a local indie, more pop, more pop and, and girly than, than the Pandoras. Um, 
and we, we hit it off and I joined the band. Um, we ended up uh, not too long after getting signed to IRS Records and putting out an album. And we had a, uh, a, a song that was, what was it? It was 38 on one of the Billboard charts and it was 42 on another, another chart. The song was called Dream Lover. And it was written by uh, two of the girls in the band, singer and, and bass player. And bass player is the girl who started the band originally. And uh, another song, outside songwriter. Um, and this is a Carpenters reference. This, everything comes back around to the Carpenters for some yes. reason. Our um, producer was Tony Peluso. And Tony Peluso was the guitar player in the Carpenters. He has recorded with them. He toured with them. He's on just about every single video from the 70s. Uh, and he's also the guy who sort of like pioneered the buzzed lead guitar sound. There's a famous Carpenter song. I can't think of it. He played this fuzz guitar on it that was sort of like, people were like, what are you doing? And then it became like this great thing. This, this like, like he pioneered it and stuff. Anyway, um, and at that time, when, when we started working with Tony, um, I was in the studio for everything. I was like a fly on the wall. And every once in a while, Tony would come up with an idea for a guitar part and he'd show me. And I'd be like, you know what? You play that riff and I'll punch you in. And so I started working, working the tape machine. <laughs> and we would take turns, you know? And uh, he'd come up with these great parts, you know? And he's just such a phenomenal guitar player. I'm just like, I played most of it. He played some really tasty little chunk chunky things, you know, that are subtle in the background, sort of rhythmic things. And um, he just had such great technique. And I'm like, you do it. <laughs> I'll punch you in. So I started working the board um, and being a fly on the wall and listening and paying attention. And, and I really sort of like thought that I, I would love to produce an engineer someday. Um, and I, I just sort of watched and absorbed like a sponge as much as I could. Uh, how he produced, how he dealt with the musicians, um, how he mixed. I watched him mix. I helped him because when you don't have automation, you need extra hands to bring yeah. this up or pop this in or do this or do that. And so uh, on certain mixes, I was there and I was helping, you know, do things on the mixing board. Um, so yeah, and, and in the meantime, I was very busy with the Rebel Pebbles and I didn't really pay much attention to what my old band, the Pandoras were doing, but apparently they, they took a different, a different uh, route. They went with the, um, the whole, there was this, you know, the Sunset, sunset Strip hair metal yes. um, uh, time period. They, they fell into that genre and that style. And Paula was very influenced by that. Um, I think Paula was influenced by whoever her boyfriend was at the time. And her boyfriend was into bands like uh, Jet Boy and, and um, Motley Crue. Um, Probably Poison. Dawkins. Dawkins. And yeah, I think Paula loved Poison. I'm not sure her boyfriend did, but um, all that stuff. And, and I, it's a, it was a blessing for me to not be in the band anymore because that's, that's not my thing at all. I just, I'm not into that, that whole thing. It was good for them because um, 
they had a good, they continued on. They really weren't the same band anymore in terms of music. They were the same people, but they had totally changed the genre of, of what they were doing. They became this hard rock band. You know, they, they changed from a Vox teardrop guitar and, and you know, and a Fender amp to a, a Les Paul and a Marshall and cowboy boots, you know, and, and, and leather pants and bustiers and, and stuff. I, I wouldn't have fit it anyway. So it all worked out in the end that they went off and they did their new thing and they made another record and, and they had a, a new drummer. And thank goodness for that, because Sherry, who was who was replaced me in the Pandoras, she's actually one of my best friends. And, you know, we, when you think about bands, a lot of people like, you know, I was a little butthurt at the time. I was replaced by this, this girl and, you know, but they went on and they did their hard rock thing and she was perfect for that. And, awesome. and later on, later on, we became uh, uh, very, very good friends. And she's like my best, best friend, one of my best friends. So, yes. So then yes. later, you know, you, well, sadly, you know, Paula dies. Um, but then right. you, you are sort of, you, the band obviously goes into some hibernation and then, you know, it gets reformed again. So was that quite a strange experience? Well, what happened, and this is, again, contribute, I give this credit to Sherry. Um, Sherry was a drummer after me. Um, Sherry's, we all started to become uh, members of a fan page on Facebook, the Pandora's fan page that a fan had created. And he, he found us all and invited us into the fan page. And so all of us previous members of the band from the from the very beginning to where it was when Paula died, all of us started reconnecting, becoming friends. Sherry sent me a friend request and I'm oh, she's the girl that replaced me. And then we just immediately hit it off. We went, we met up at Disneyland and our kids hung out and, and hit it off. And we, you know, we just, we actually had our first meeting at Disneyland, which is kind of funny. Anyway, um, and there's a whole period of time too, from about 91, till about the time there's like a 20 year 18 year period yes. where you know w w i wasn't playing in bands i was working as a sound engineer for television and and i had a recording studio and i did post-production audio and i was a sound effects editor and all this different thing and then i had kids and i stopped doing all those things and i just became a full-time mom but um the internet you know and facebook uh brought us all back together again and sherry said after we all reconnected and kind of got to know each other again sherry's like i'm having a birthday party in my backyard for my husband and i'd love it if we could get together and play some pandora songs so that was sort of the catalyst that that, that started that whole uh revival of the pandoras and um so Melanie was on keyboards, uh, Sherry was on drums, I was on bass, because Sherry, Sherry plays drums, Sherry doesn't play another instrument, Sherry plays drums, so Sherry's going to play drums, and I played bass, and a girl who was in the Pandoras, she toured with them for, I think, a couple months, she sang and played guitar, and, uh, and another girl who played in, with, in a band with former Pandoras members, she played guitar too, so it was sort of this sort of um, potpourri of, of loosely connected Pandora's members uh, playing these songs. And that sort of started the whole thing. And then 
And then Kim was like, uh, Kim was with the Pixies. She was playing in the Pixies and she was touring with them. And we were in touch with her, you know, and she's like, oh my God, that's, that's so fun, you guys. I wish I could, I could participate. And then me and Melanie and Sherry got together and we're like, let's, let's do this, but let's do it with Kim. Kim would be the perfect singer guitar player. She, she's got the chops. She's got the scream and the voice, and she's got that star quality that hardly anybody has, you know, it's that X factor. I don't know what it is, but Kim had that thing. And we knew that with Kim, it, it would be complete. And so we waited for Kim and, and Kim got fired <laughs> from the Pixies and uh, she just came right and fit right in with us. And we started, we started what would be the, the, I don't know what you call it, the, the reformation of, of the Pandoras. Blimey. Uh, so is that Kim Deal? Kim Shattuck. Shattuck, right. Got you, God. Kim I mean, Shattuck. There was, Kim. there was a lot of Kims, weren't there? Kim Gordon, Kim Deal, Kim Shattuck. Right. There, there, yeah. There were, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, so Kim's, Kim's time with the Pixies was, was, had ended. And we were, uh, we had already started rehearsing uh, at my place right here, actually. Me and Sherry and Melanie got together and started rehearsing the songs with the hopes that uh, Kim would be able to join us at some point. And so we were rehearsed and, and Kim came and, and, and we, we did, our first rehearsal was here, I believe. Yeah, we ran the songs and then we got together in a rehearsal studio and we were just, something, something like outside of our bodies happened where we were just like, everybody was just like, this feels so right. This, 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 um, Paula would be so into what we're doing and, uh, everybody fit. Like I was on bass. Melanie was on keyboard. She's always been on keyboards. Sherry on drums and Kim knocking it out of the park with guitar and vocals. And we're just like, this is cool. Let's, let's do some gigs, you know? And, uh, we, we played a couple shows and, um, it sort of took off from there. Um, and we went in and we recorded, we recorded, um, what was it? One, two, three, four, five, what was it? Seven songs? I forget. Um, so Melanie, the keyboard player, she has a connection with Green Day and um, her husband works with Green Day and they have a studio or they had a studio called Jingle Town in Oakland. And for the people who work with, with Green Day, they're like, everybody's family. If you want to, if your wife wants to come in with her band and record at our studio, you're welcome to it. And so we recorded at Green Day Studio with Green Day's engineer, Chris Dugan, who's a Grammy Award winning engineer and a great guy. And uh, we were, I, there's pictures on my Facebook of, of all of us and on the, Facebook, on the Pandora's page. But um, yeah, we went and recorded uh, at, at Green Day's studio um, for free, basically. Uh, <laughs> so we did that. We did our, our, um, our EP that came out on uh burger records well that is good that is, so that was only six years ago now isn't it yeah 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 but then um but then you had another horrendous shock because kim passes doesn't she as well yeah um we 
we played a show in um in portland with the pandoras uh it was a fundraiser thing and they flew us out there and you know paid all our expenses and things like that um and at that show uh i remember me and and hillary hillary had 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 been uh, filling in for uh, for sherry she she became the drummer because uh, sherry had an, a medical issue and she couldn't she couldn't continue with with the shows that we had booked, so um, Hillary was uh, on drums and Melanie was there and Kim was there, and uh, I just remember this uh, kind of underneath the stage is where the um, the dressing room was, and and we were all going to go walk around, you know, the downtown Portland and 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 just walk around. Uh, it was daytime and we had done our sound check and we had all this time to kill, and and Kim Kim stayed behind and i i i got sort of a, a a weird vibe i mean i don't know what what it was but that night when when we're playing our show during our show i was very aware that kim was having some issues uh hitting hitting the chords and and hitting her solos and so i i made it a point for for me to be really conscious of, of really keeping it, keeping it together on my end on the bass and vocals <clears throat> and not, not acknowledging anything that was going on. But I, I, I knew something was up. I, I didn't know what, and, but I did know that, that ALS ran in her family and, and um, that she had lost her dad to it and her uh, cousin to it. And that it was a, it was a possibility, you know, and, and that's, that's one of the things that ran through my mind at that time. So um, that was actually, I believe, the last show that Kim ever played uh, live was with us. And, and, and she was uh, shortly after she, um, she, she went in, she, she had some tests done and things like that. And um, she was diagnosed uh, not too long after that with, with ALS. They thought she might have carpal tunnel because she was having an issue with her hand. Um, we, we did actually do one show together. Um, it, was, it was Sherry, Hillary, Melanie, myself, and Kim. But Kim was unable to play guitar or bass. She was possibly going to play bass because it required a little less articulation in the hand. And I was going to play guitar, but um, she, she couldn't. She couldn't play. She couldn't play. She could sing and she could, you know, play the tambourine. And so we did a, a birthday show for uh, all of our mutual friend who was known from back in the day at the local club called the Redwood. And we played a bunch of covers. Uh, we didn't play as the Pandoras, even though we were all the Pandoras. We played as the Bobarellas. And our friend was uh, Bob Cantu. It was his birthday. And so we did the show for him. But th that was really, I guess, Kim's last, last live live show as a musician but last show with pandoras was in portland and uh yeah she was she was diagnosed shortly after that and uh it was i believe it was just short of two years after her diagnosis that she passed away and she wanted to keep it private she she and she did she kept it private um she didn't want anybody to know um she she's she was able to stay online and do instagram and and do uh do some things but she she lost the ability to use her her hands and her legs as happens so she she spent the last oh gosh was it the last year uh using a device called the toby 
which is it tracks your eyes right. and it's like a like an ipad or something you know little computer and it, it tracks your eyes and that was how she ended up being able to communicate because she couldn't talk anymore um it was a very uh unpleasant and fast decline in, in her ability to do certain things amazingly she still produced two more albums after her diagnosis and after she lost the ability to use her 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 hands or to speak um and she asked me to engineer her muffs record for her um at her house which i did so i i i engineered the um uh the the bass recordings anything that hadn't been done already that they mm. hadn't done um so there were songs that were not completed that they had gone in and they recorded the drums uh, but then they still needed to do what 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 they did usually was they would record the the basic tracks in a in a nice studio to get great drum sound great drum room and then do overdubs you know the vocals and and percussion and, and bass uh, at her house with with the system in fact uh, the system that I have now, Kim, Kim gave me this computer and this uh, interface as a way of saying thank you or paying. I she I didn't I she wanted to pay me. I said mm. I don't I don't want to get paid. I just want to hang out with my friend and help you make your your art, you know. And and I'm learning at the same time. And so it, it's good for you. It's good for me. I don't want to have be paid. She gave me her um, <clears throat> her laptop. With that had the the Pro Tools recording software and on this interface, as a as a thank you or payment or whatever, and so uh, every day I use this, I log in, I see Kim's face, and so I I have that nice memory of her. Wow. Um, but yeah, so she was able to uh, complete her record. I engineered all the overdubs at her house. Uh, I I um me and the and the guitar player who she her friend of hers who he, she she wanted him to be her hands on the guitar so he played a lot of the guitar parts and and i recorded it i engineered it and um so between he and i we came up with a system where we broadcast the computer screen out to the living room where kim was because she couldn't come into the room anymore she had been in a wheelchair for the first part of our recordings mm. but she really, really needed to have her feet elevated uh and and she couldn't sit for that long. So anyway, the living room, she was going to be put, stay put in the living room. So I ran a headphone extension cable out to Kim, put the headphones on her. We broadcast the computer screen to her living room TV. So she was able to hear what we were doing. I had a microphone set up for talkback so we could talk to her. And she would um, use her Toby uh, eye tracking thing to to talk to us, to reply back to us and, and say, oh, that was a good take or, oh, it is a little out of tune or let's try another one or, you know, whatever. Um, she was just able to, you know, listen and produce and as sharp as ever too. I mean, she heard stuff and it's like, you're right. You know, we should do that again or, or whatever. And, uh, and we, we produced the record that way. Wow. That's and, quite an uh, emotional moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was pretty, I was honored that she asked me to be, to be a part of that. Mm. Um, and uh, so, you know, um, I have that nice memory with her and it was also um, a way, not just for me to spend time with Kim, knowing that she wasn't going to be around in, 
in a certain amount of time that she's going to be gone, just being able to have, because we would all go over and take turns visiting with Kim and hanging out with her and helping her out. Um, and, um, and then she asked me to, to engineer and then I was spending six, eight hours, you know, with her and, and she didn't want to stop. I'm like, you know, if you're tired, if you, you know, we could stop, but I'll work as long as you need me to, you know, sometimes I had to leave and go pick up my kids and, and be done for the day. And other days, um, uh, if my husband was in town, cause he works, if he was in town and he could pick them up, I'd say, okay, I'm just going to take a break for dinner. I'm going to go grab some food, but then I'll come back and we can work as late as you want. So, um, it, we, we worked it out. Um, but I forget where I was going with that. Um, it was just a way for, for me to spend time with Kim. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and for Kim to do something that would distract her and take her out of her body, so to speak. Because when you're so laser focused on something, she told me this. She said, when I'm working with you, Karen, when I'm working on this album, I, I, don't, I don't think about the fact that I'm sick. I don't think about it. So it was a really nice way to uh, keep her mind creative and to distract her from her, her situation and make the most of it and be creative. So that, that was, I'm just really happy that, that, that she asked me and that I was able to, to help her, you know, to realize her, her creative dream and for her to, and she was a hundred percent the producer. I was just the person operating. And if she asked my opinion, I'd give it. I, I didn't try to, you know, uh, I understood what my function was and where my place was. And I didn't want to definitely didn't want to overstep any boundaries in terms of, of, you know, producing, I was just engineering, you know, engineering stuff as an engineer does. And what I've learned is that engineers are quiet until someone asks their opinion. And that's, that's a good engineer. <laughs> if you're a, if you're a producer, well, then you can have an opinion, you know, otherwise you don't have an opinion unless someone asks you. So, um, so that was a, that was a, I, I, I hate to say the word good experience, but it was good for her. It was good for me. And, and it was, uh, God, what's the word? What's the word? Thera not therapeutic, cathartic, ther not cathartic, therapeutic. It, it was, it was a good thing. It was a mo it's definitely a moment. It's definitely yeah. one of those moments. I don't, I don't know how to categorize it. I don't no. know how to label it. But it, it was a thing we did together, and I'm so glad we did. Well, I guess special, really, isn't it? It's a very special yeah. thing to have it, that, have that experience with someone. So look, lastly, look, which is always exciting. I know it's a bit of a boring question as well. But what were, if you could have said something to your, like, a 16 to 18-year-old self, kind of starting out, if, if you could have just kind of whispered a few things and say, oh, you're doing really well. But just, or not just but, but, you know, just like a few little words of wisdom. I just wonder what you might just sort of say. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, I wish you had sent me this ahead of time because I could have really thought about it. I, <laughs> off the top of my head, geez, you know, I, and I've, I have thought about this before because you always wonder, do you have regrets? If you could go back and do something differently, would you? I don't know if I would do that many things differently because I think things happened and one thing stopped and it pushed me in another direction that, that took me to a wonderful place and, and a different, a different experience with different people. Yes. Um, 
I really don't know. I mean, I do so many different things. You know, I, I'm not like a one trick pony. I, I play a lot of instruments and I, I'm a performer, but I'm also, you know, into, I have my studio and I mix and I, I do a lot of, I'm a very technical person. So um, I, I think maybe if there's, there's one thing I could have, could have done more of was to try to do my own band where I write the songs and I sing the songs, but I never thought of myself as being able to do those things, to stand up and sing songs in front of people and be an entertainer and be the, the kind of person that people like to flock to and watch, you know, that, that X factor or whatever that is that makes somebody uh, interesting to other people. I never really felt like I wanted to, to be that or do that. But in hindsight, I, I totally could have had a go at it. Mm. Um, and in hindsight, I probably should have written more songs because the songs that I've written, I, they're, they're decent. They're okay. They've, they've done things. People have connected with them. But uh, I never felt like I, I had to write songs. Uh, like some people feel that that's, that's who they are. That's, it's what they do. It's, it's, um, I, I don't feel that way. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not compelled to, to write music for that reason. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think I'm, I'm giving you an answer, but it's sort of all over the place and vague. <laughs> if you're looking for a specific thing, like, like, oh, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have done this particular thing. I, I can't think. Yes. Well, I really can't think. I, I, I don't have a lot of regrets because I think that, that you learn from your mistakes. I think if you never make mistakes, you never grow, you never learn. Um, I've always tried things that were beyond my ability just because if I fail, well, I I tried it. I'd rather try something and fail than never try the thing at all. So, yeah. uh, but I never did try to front my, well, I did front my own band recently. I, I don't know if you know the Carrie Ann's, but um, uh, I have a friend from Australia, Mary Ann, and she's an amazing bass player, guitar player, singer. Uh, we, we became friends on the internet through this, this group that we belong to that, that do, um, what, are, what is it called? Collaborations online. Yeah. And, and she, uh, she makes trips to, to LA like once a year, this year, she's not here, but, um, so we became friends and I didn't even know she was making these trips and she knows all these people here. She knows more people than I do, more musicians. Anyway, she said, oh, Karen, next time I don't want to do an accent. I'm going to do a bad accent. She's Australian. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to muck it up. Uh, but she's like, next time I come to LA, let's like record or let's, let's do a show or something. I'm like, okay okay, we're going to do it though. I mean, you know, we're going to do it. That means when you're here, part of your vacation time is going to be, we're going to rehearse and we're going to, you know, book a show. So we did that. And we actually, and I said, you know, we, we've learned these songs. We did one of her originals and uh, I'm like, why don't we just record? We'll just come into my studio. We're going to be rehearsing here anyway. Let's record it. So we recorded it and it became a single and Rodney on the rock played our single. And so, um, we did this thing and I sang, I sang, she sang one song, she sang her song and I sang a cover of um, Let's Active, Every Word Means No. And we got a lot of airplay on Rodney's show. It was, it was pretty cool. And so I guess I did do the thing where I sort of front the band and lead the yes, band and sing. Absolutely. And, uh, 
Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I don't really have that many regrets. Uh, if they are, um, I don't know. I learned from them. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview with Karen Bassett. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, well done. You will get a house point. This has been the C86 show. I'm David Eastor. Um, and if you want to contact me for some nice reason, it has to be nice or don't bother, bother um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do the C86 show. Also, I've archived all these interviews and uh, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes or Podbean. That is true. Anyway, look, and again, a massive thank you to Karen. Um, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>